Hi, my name is Saul and this is the story of London. In my account of the city, I have tried to cover the history of the place as it has meandered across time, some parts of which were periods of intense historical darkness, by which I mean the town of London disappeared into the shadows of the past. Records were few or far between or even non-existent, and the archaeological evidence was somewhat obfuscated. With the death of Alfred the Great, as London now enters the 10th century, it again reaches one of those umbral eras, a particularly dark one. Not a long one compared to, say, the 5th century, but similarly impenetrable nevertheless. London virtually disappears from historical record for a few decades. Nothing terrible happens to it, but nothing overtly significant either. The historical records we do have of the age after Alfred the Great died are seemingly focused on the ongoing geopolitical struggle between the English in the south and west of the island and the Scandinavian diaspora in the north and east of the island. London disappears from clear view during much of this conflict and is almost lost to us. Almost. But we can piece together from the few scattered remnants we do find an extraordinary moment in its tale. A cold, tough and fierce place emerges out of the shadows where the most ferocious and terrible aspect of London's personality was born. The story of London now reaches chapter 17, The Heart of Darkness. We begin in the 900s, and London is clearly not the largest town in England. It's far from it, and we know over the next few decades it grew very slowly. It was significant, especially culturally, but there were far more important towns in England at the time. Places like Winchester, York and Canterbury were much more significant, and there were others who could compete with London in terms of size and gravitas. At a most basic level, the first few decades of the 10th century saw slow but steady growth in London. It remained a trade port, easy to get to from the continent, but most of its trade came from inland along the river, more Oxford than Ostend. We know this from the piles of broken pottery we find from the era. Most of it was locally made. Continental pottery, which has the archaeological advantage of being much easier to date, does not appear in large amounts in the remains of Anglo-Saxon London until the 970s. Alfred the Great's ambition to build London up to become the trade entropot it had once been was clearly not being realised. What kind of place was it then? We should not see London in this era as a precursor of the later medieval town. 
You know, all colourful, noisy, jostling streets filled with tall buildings built cheek by jowl and adorned with thatched roofs. This London looked nothing like that. We should try to imagine, rather, some small Germanic-looking settlement, often covered in snow. The houses were mostly little better than peasant shacks. The only difference between London's version and the rural ones we imagine in poor Anglo-Saxon hamlets is that the London versions were built closer together. We know, and I will cover how we know later, that on the whole their homes were more wooden huts than anything else. Thick wooden walls, a sturdy door, with small triangular holes carved into the walls representing the only windows, anything larger and they would allow insects in during the summer and cold in during the winter. These places, their homes, were cramped, dingy and tenebraean. One historian said the image of the town of this era should remind us more of early Moscow than early London, that behind thick impressive walls and a few mighty churches you mostly come upon row after row of wooden sheds, scarcely any better than the log huts of peasants. London's urban area seemed to be condensed between what we today call Cheapside and the river. As was said, it grew very slowly. We find the earliest settlements in what would become Milk Street, Pudding Lane and Lovett Lane from this era, though they were scarcely developed. The town stretched from where we today find Leadenhall Street in the east to Gresham Street in the west. Indeed, for much of the early part of the 10th century, London's footprint and population was smaller than Londonwick's back in the 8th century the vibrant international trade port of King Offa and his predecessors, a town which minted coins with Muslim design motifs on them. That was long gone. We know there were some spectacular buildings erected in the 10th century, even if their traces were found almost accidentally. And how we found them accidentally, by the way, is really kind of awesome. See, we know that during the 10th century, the Londoners were desperately seeking to expand their dock areas. And they did this by filling the nearby riverbank with the timber they would recycle from old ships and old buildings. These shards of wood would be used as landfill to build upon, making them the foundation for new docks, which means these shards of wood were preserved over time. And one set of remains especially stands out. Sometime in the early 11th century, the Londoners added the remains of a massive building into that landfill. All we have found is some large wooden struts, but the story they tell us is fascinating. They were from trees cut down between 956 and 979, and they became parts of large wooden pillars that stood 27 and a half feet tall. We have estimated they were part of a building whose roof towered 11 metres, 36 feet above the ground. This was a staggering construction. The best way to visualise what they built is to imagine something like one of those Norwegian stove churches. It probably looked something like that. Was it a church? It could have been, very probably. Its purpose may have been secular, but that seems the most likely explanation. And I'm afraid we honestly do not know. 
All we do know is that after a generation's use, the building was torn down and recycled and probably given the sheer weight of those pieces, not carried very far so it must have been located somewhere near the riverside. And by the way, that landfill under the docks, that's where we found the remains of the huts with the little triangle windows and that's how we know what the places looked like. They recycled their own homes. So in between the clusters of huts would stand occasional civic buildings of grandeur. But on the whole, with the exception of St Paul's, this was a woeful place. As you walked from this built-up area towards the walls, you would find the division between town and countryside, between urban and rural, began before you got to the walls. And beyond them, it was not much better. A collection of fields and marshlands, of rivers and wilderness. There was some major building going on between 900 and 940, however, mostly across the river, it seems. But even then, we're unsure about it. See, during this age, there was a reform of the defensive works of Wessex. The memories of those Viking raids in the age of Alfred were not lost upon anyone. And, as we'll cover in future chapters, the conflict between the region under control by Vikings and those under control by the kings of Wessex was still going on. And as such, the defensive works originated by Alfred were carried on by his successors. And it is now we briefly need to talk about Supringegrioch, the defensive works of the men of Surrey. Basically, across the river from London was a burr, or a defensive fortification. And that long name, which I'm probably murdering by mispronouncing it incorrectly, the Supringegrioch, is what we today call Southwark, the South Work. Now, the reason we know so much about the South Work is because in and around the year 914, the Anglo-Saxon state drew up a list of the 30 or so places south of the River Thames built to protect the citizenry from the ravages of the Vikings, the Burrs. The system was supposed to work that there'd be one of these never more than 25 miles from another one. In the event of a Viking incursion, the population could flee to the Burrs and find safety and shelter. Added to this, the Fjord, the army of the Anglo-Saxon state, could use the Burrs to provision and rest as they marched across the land looking to kick the heads in of any invading Vikings. And as we'd seen in the fighting of the 890s, when you use this system well, it could be devastating. So this system was paid for via taxation, as all public works are. And the base unit of taxation in both Mercia and Wessex for many centuries beforehand was something called the hide. A hide was basically a food tax. It was a name given to the amount of food a family could grow to give to their overlord in a year, roughly. And the collective collection of hides was called the Hydage. Back in 914 then, the government drew up a list of the burrs of Wessex and the tax records for how they were paid for on a document that was called the Burgle Hydage, which did exactly what it said on the tin. It was a list of the hides needed to maintain the burrs. And this is where we find evidence that Southwark was a fort on the other side of the river. 
Yet the evidence also says something way more interesting. According to the document, Southwark was the fourth largest in terms of hides collected south of the Thames. It was based on 1,800 hides. That's a lot of tax. Since the equation was roughly one warrior could be maintained per hide, that meant a standing defensive army of 1,800 men. And some historians have suggested that that many hides should equate to a burr with a possible area of about 7,425 feet. Or, in more simpler terms, if that record was an accurate description of the defensive works of the men of Surrey, then we would find a gigantic fortress south of the river opposite London. The entire raised ridgeway that today we call Borough High Street, but between then and now we'd spend centuries calling Long Southwark, should be enclosed and fortified, and it would be a veritable death trap of Anglo-Saxon spikiness. And our problem is, we can't find a single piece of archaeological evidence to say it was there. Nothing to indicate a vast fortification supplied by nearly 2,000 hides of public investment. We do find a semicircular ditch had been built southeast from the Thames, allowing an area of about 5 hectares to be defended by a ditch and probably a wooden palisade. But that's it. And even then we can only accurately date this ditch from the year 953. So where the hell is the giant fort? We would not be scolded to suggest the ditchwork compound probably dates to earlier than 953, so maybe the early 900s, and even earlier possibly, as it seems to be in place when the Viking warlord Haston sailed up the Thames in 894. So why does the Burgal Hydage of 914 suggest Southwark was this giant fortification and the archaeological evidence says it was a much more modest in its plans. We don't know. Some historians have postulated that the reason for the discrepancy was that the Burgle Hydage was basically what was planned for, but these plans never materialised, and it could just be well that. It could also be, and I don't want to cast dispersions upon the honesty of those brave Anglo-Saxon ancestors of ours, but it could also be clear evidence of graft. I mean, someone claimed this much in taxes from the state for a major building project, but delivered a subpar development. You know, as a Londoner, we kind of expect that most of the time, so it could be that also. But there could be another reason. And to get to that reason, we need to talk briefly about London Bridge. See, we have a problem with London Bridge in the 10th century. Quite a big one, really. So we know the Roman Bridge had been washed away over the long centuries, and we know the Anglo-Saxons rebuilt the bridge over the Thames, linking London to the South Work. Only we can't say when they built the bridge, because no one ever wrote down a document saying, I, Aethelhandy, rebuilt the bridge at London at this date, and it was paid for by this potentate. We can say with absolute certainty that it was in place by the year 
10.16. But before that, we do not know. If London is a bit of a shade lurking just outside of the historical limelight in the 10th century, then London Bridge is a gossamer spirit lurking behind it. A will-o'-wisp, forever dancing just beyond our reach, mostly because any physical evidence would have been washed away sometime over the last, I don't know, 1,000 years or so. So as such, we need to examine written sources that mention the bridge to find out when exactly the damn thing was rebuilt. Now, supposedly the first proper mention of an Anglo-Saxon London bridge dates all the way back to the 9th century, and specifically the era between 865 and 871. This was the reign of King Æthelred of Wessex, the guy who was Alfred the Great's older brother and whose death saw Alfred take the throne. In the law codes of King Æthelred, we find the following toll placed upon the residents of London, being described as, quote, Whoever shall come to the bridge in a boat in which there are fish, he himself being the dealer, shall pay one half penny for toll, and if it be a larger vessel, one penny, unquote. Reading this as admitted to go, aha! There was a bridge in London by 865. Me, being me, I initially got more excited by proving the existence of a river-based fishing industry and the implications of smaller ships, larger ships and dealers. You know, the, the toll is on the owner-operator fishermen, suggesting there were middlemen who occasionally bought the fish of the fishermen and sold it on, perhaps inland, and that's just awesome to contemplate. But then I love logistics. But, and this is the issue I have, with there being a bridge at this time. If that toll was collected at the bridge, where the hell was this bridge two decades later when Haston turned up with his Viking fleet? He sailed down the Thames, going as far inland as the River Severn, right? There is no reference to the bridge in the accounts of his campaign. No fighting at the bridge, no overcoming the bridge, no mention saying the bridge was not working, no mention of a garrison at the bridge. Are we saying the bridge existed in the late 860s and then just fell down before the 890s? Also when you think about it, it doesn't make sense. In the 860s, the residents of London lived in Londonwick, not London Burr. They were all living over in the region around by Covent Garden, not in the area running from Cheapside down to the river. Or in other words, the bridge, if there was a bridge, was a mile or so west of them. Additionally, no reference is ever made to there being a bridge being around in Mercian times. It's worth reminding folks that yes, there may well have been some people living or trading within the walls previous to Alfred's moving of the town. As we have mentioned in previous chapters, there seems to have been a beachfront market down by the river, one that would eventually be called Aethelred's Hive and in our time Queen Hive. So what could be happening, and this is merely speculation I should stress, is that if the town was still mostly based over in Londonwick, but if there was a hive down by the riverside over behind the walls, positioned along the remains of the docks, then they would be closer to see the bridge. But what they were seeing was the remains of the Roman bridge. 
because by now, unless it had been maintained and repaired, and once again we see no provision for doing this in any record anywhere, it would have been washed away centuries beforehand. So all that we left of it were the bases of it, the start of the bridge, one on the north bank and one on the south. So for myself, and this is just my theory, I see the reference in the laws of King Aethelred not so much saying there was an actual bridge there. The toll was collected on those who sailed to the bridge, not under the bridge. It referred to a North Shore or Both Shore landmark, the remains of the bridge that was. But take that as only a working hypothesis, based on the fact that there seems to be nothing in place in 894. So when was it built? Our next clue suggests it was completed by 948, and now we come to a lurid tale of magic and witchcraft. See, there is a record of a court case involving a man called Elfsig. According to the report, this Elfsig came into possession of some land up in Ellsworth in Northamptonshire. How he gained this land we don't know, but he appears to have gained the land off a widow somehow, and the reports say she responded very darkly to this news. She created a small figure of Ilfsij and stuck pins in him. This figurine was discovered and the widow was dragged from her home, while her son, who may or may not have been in on the magical pin sticking, was forced to flee and become an outlaw. Eventually the woman was put on trial and then ceremonially drowned at, quote, London Bridge, unquote, which adds a lurid and rather ghastly image of a mob of baying Londoners calling for her death by their bridge, does it not? The problem with this story, well, even if it was true, based on the fact the records of this grisly case were kept in Peterborough Abbey, most historical consensus now believes that the bridge this took place in was a bridge near Peterborough, where there was a crossing over the River Nene heading towards London. So the 948 mention isn't a valid date for the bridge. And more importantly, if the Burgle Hydage of 914 doesn't mention any hides being used to pay for the bridge, and it doesn't, one wonders if it existed in 914. It doesn't seem so. But maybe this is why the hides for the provision of Southwark were so large. It wasn't to build a fortress, but it was to build a bridge, or at the very least maintain it. It's a possibility. But again, as I said, the bridge is like a will-o'-wisp. The actual rebuilding date eludes us. We have nothing concrete, or nothing solidly wooden in this case. All we can say is that at some time, between Hastings' fleet sailing up the Thames without impediment in 894, and then another Viking fleet running headlong into the bloody thing in 1014, London Bridge was rebuilt by the Anglo-Saxons sometime, probably in the 10th century, and maintained, and paid for but we do not know exactly by whom, or exactly when, or any other firm details. It's one of the mysteries of the 10th century of London we are still a long way from solving. 
But while there is little we can know for sure about London in the 10th century, there are things we can reconstruct, powerful clues that offer us a delightful, if somewhat grisly, insight into the town, and above all, the people of it. Because while our historical records of this era focus on the big names, you know, the new king, Edward the Elder, the Lord of Mercia, his brother-in-law, Aethelred, or his wife, Aethelfleda, we know these people really didn't spend most of their time, you know, running towns. They were mostly busy raising armies, writing laws, granting lands, fighting, you know, that kind of thing. Day-to-day running of any town would be in the hands of its citizens. And we discover that London did have an organisation seemingly running the place. It's time to meet the Peace Guild of London. And I suggest you hang on to your hats, because these guys are brutal. Now, whenever you say the word guild, you get images of mighty medieval trade alliances of craftsmen who would come together for mutual benefit and establish a trade monopoly over wherever they were based. But the Peace Guild of the 10th century of London was nothing at all like this. Rather, the best way to describe it would be Imagine the most brutal version of a homeowner's association you could possibly imagine. And then add violence. Lots of violence. This was a group that was a wild mix of amateur law enforcement, community watch, vigilante justice, citizen militia and members only dining club. And was certainly around during the reign of King Aethelstan, who was King Edward's son, Alfred the Great's grandson. But based on how it was set up and on a few other clues, it appears to have its roots in the early part of the 900s, so it was probably born around the 910s at the latest. And what seemed to have started it was theft. Lots and lots of theft. Sure, 10th century Anglo-Saxons would certainly not be strangers to theft as, you know, Vikings, but the Peace Guild seemed to have been motivated by their fellow Anglo-Saxons turning up and stealing their stuff. It's one of the great rules in life that whenever you find laws, any laws, they've been written because someone did something in the past that the powers that be went, don't do that again, and so they banned it. And the more the thing happens, the more brutal the band gets. Well, you get insight into the amount of theft taking place in 10th century London from the sheer amount of rules the Peace Guild introduced to cover theft. You see, primarily, the Peace Guild was a body of citizens designed to respond to the theft of property. And it wasn't a small body. In fact, it was huge. It divided its membership up into hundreds. Indeed, there is some evidence to suggest that everyone who lived in London was a member, and some who didn't live in London were also members. There are some bishops named as being part of it, even when they lived outside of the city, and we think they are mentioned as a members because they own land in the city, so that means they technically were members. And it wasn't just a club that was exclusive to the rich. The membership was very diverse, from those bishops and the local reeves or the local elected officials down to the humble workers in the fields around the collection of huts. 
The exact term to describe the membership was apparently, and please forgive me while I murder Old English here, Geirlich Geirlich, which is literally translated as Erlich and Churlish. Sorry about my pronunciations and murder of the words. Everyone in London was in the Peace Guild. Got it? Cool. So the central aim of the Peace Guild was to make sure there was compensation for the victims of theft. This compensation came in two parts. The first part being financial restitution. And we get given an insight into just how much stuff was being stolen from the detail these rules went into. The compensation list was very clear. If a thief stole an item, then a set compensatory amount was enforced upon them. An ox being stolen was rated as being worth 30 pence in compensation. A cow would be 20 pence. A pig came in at 10 pence. And a sheep was 5 pence. If the item stolen was a horse, or if the item stolen was a slave, these were rated at a staggering 120 pence worth of compensation. Although it must be said there was a provision in the rules that said that if after talking about it, the horse or the slave really wasn't worth 120 pence, then the amount could be lowered. Anyway, with these fines set, the costs of the theft, even if the goods were returned, were imposed, and the coins would come from the thief himself. And then the second part of the compensation? They'd kill him. This was the big thing of the Peace Guild. Thieves get killed. No question, no debate. You steal from London, we take the value of the goods from you, and then we kill you. Hey, maybe we kill you first and then demand the cash afterwards. Indeed, killing first and then demanding compensation later does actually seem to be the Peace Guild's M.O. They offered 12 pence to anyone who killed the suspected thief during their investigations. And if the thief's family took umbrage at the murder of the suspect, the rules said that the Peace Guild would stand together. You wouldn't be dealing with a man who just killed your brother, say. You would now face hundreds of Londoners closing ranks. Now, obviously, finding the thief wasn't easy. Unless you caught them red-handed, criminal investigation methods back in the 10th century were quite rudimentary. But that didn't stop the Londoners from having a go. Oh, no. The first thing that would happen is when the theft was discovered, they would raise a posse. Well, I say posse. I, I think furious, bloody-minded, semi-psychotic mob is a much more apt description. And this mob would be empowered to search London looking for the thief. Searching for someone seems to have always been problematic, and we can imagine it was. I mean, first you have to raise the mob, and then explain why they were being a mob, describe what was taken, describe the suspect. That's a lot of work. Which is probably why if the mob did start a search for the culprits, they would automatically add 120 pence to the compensation the thief would have to pay. So suddenly the theft of a 5 pence sheep is now a matter of 125 pence sheep and mob fee. Anyway, if the culprit was not found within the walls, then the mob would have to set off in pursuit of them. And it is clear from the many rules and regulations to do with crossing the boundaries of London that the Peace Guild mob saw most of the culprits as being from out of town. 
The furious body of Peace Guild members had lots of rules for handling thieves who had the audacity to try and flee somewhere like Middlesex. They would simply demand any local reeve help them in their chase. Literally, any local sheriff or elected official near London had to respect their authority. And if they didn't, then they would suffer at the hands of the mob. Seriously, at this point, London's primary law enforcement tool was the shock and awe of having what sounds like hundreds of Londoners turning up in fury and demanding justice and restitution. And if a thief had friends who were willing to resist the mob, well, then things escalated. The mob would send for reinforcements from London and also from the local area to come increase their numbers with, quote, as many men as may to us seem suitable in so great a suit, so that the guilty man may stand in greater awe on account of our association." Unquote. This was about terror, scaring the living bejesus out of prospective thieves by assisting on violent mob justice, backed up with the willingness to go through anyone who got in their way. After all, for daring to stand up to defend a thief, the mob would feel no guilt in killing the thieves' friends also. Remember, the purpose of the Peace Guild was to execute the suspected thief, quote, and those who fight with him and support him, unless they will desert him, unquote. London had traditionally been a place where local towns and hamlets would send their goods to market. Now they could expect determined, frenzied mobs of Londoners turning up armed and ready, and fierce and sharp confrontations abounded. And let us be under no illusion here. The Peace Guild made it very clear that the death sentence would be applied to any thief over the age of 12. That's right. They would kill children suspected of petty larceny and then demand compensation of at least 120 pence from their family for the trouble of doing so. And if the 12-year-old's family decide to resist, the death sentence applied to them as well. It should be noted that the 12-year-old stipulation was seen as a tad too much for the king. Athelstan himself made a note that killing 12-year-olds was distasteful and that, quote, it seemed too cruel that a person so young or for so small an offence, unquote, would be executed. He demanded that the death sentence should only apply to those aged 15 or older. Of course, he kept the stipulation that 12-year-olds who had the audacity to run from the mob were still executionable. <laughs> if they were not guilty, after all, why did they run, eh? It should be noted that Anglo-Saxon legal systems on the ground was one where might equaled right. If the case could not be decided via immediate eyewitnesses, it generally was won by whomever had brought the most high-profile speakers on their behalf. So the London Peace Guild, with its members representing powerful bishops, would win if there was ever a trial. We do have records, however, of thieves having powerful friends who were able to get clemency in terms of the death sentence being carried out upon them. But always the financial aspect was applied. Those who could somehow gain mitigation would always fulfil the fines, selling goods if need be, or at times even entering a period of slavery to cover their debt. 
The vigilantes of London may have wanted blood, but they always gained financial compensation, come what may. Understand, the Peace Guild was not any kind of formal government organization. Its primary purpose was inflicting righteous fury for theft. But there does seem to have been an additional, maybe larger role for it. It could well have policed the town of London itself. You see, the rules of the Peace Guild also included a provision wherein the leading members of the Guild would gather once a month to dine together and discuss the affairs of London. In many ways, the Peace Guild, as violent as it is, represents the first council, or body like a council, designed to keep an eye on things in London. And indeed, such informal bodies may have been seen as representatives of London to the outside world. We know at one point King Athelstan held a gathering of the great and good in Surrey, and two men attended, who may well have been the first London citizens asked for at a gathering to represent the city. We do not know. But even if it's only speculation, I believe we should add the names of Elfhia Stib and Brithnoth son of Odda to the list of the earliest leaders of the city of London. Were these men then representatives of that dark city whose citizens responded to theft with brutal, bloodthirsty savagery? I, for one, think so, but it is only my imagination that confirms it. And with this, we close this chapter of the story of London. The 10th century, as I said, was a dark time, and in the next chapter I will focus away for a brief while to place the events of the oncoming decades into context. Elsewhere there was war and mayhem, and a geopolitical struggle that was to define Britain for centuries to come. But it's worth keeping in mind one final thing here. The 10th century was an era of reinvention. We've already discussed in previous chapters how Alfred had invented the word Anglesin, the English kind, to describe the people he ruled, the English, an imaginary word to describe an imaginary peoples. But it was during the 10th century that these people who lived here began to find their identity with this term, that the English truly began in hamlets and towns and burrs across the island. The long and complicated process of nation building was going on now. And I mention this because here, hidden in the obsidian folds of 10th century London, another identity was also being forged. But it was not part of the Anglesin. This was a different song. An angry song, a song of a coldness of heart and a mercurial fury. A song of a people whose reaction to being upset was violence and terror and death. The song of London in the 10th century was harsh and discordant. So no, not the brave and hardy song of the Angle Sin at all. This was the dark song of the London sin, the London kind, the first flowering 
of the much-feared London mob. The Peace Guild is the first glimpse of the fury of London, which would flare up again and again, hate-filled and blood-stained over the centuries ahead of us. We will meet it again many times in the story to come. But it was born here, in this dark era, conceived of and given form in a small pocket of historical shadow. This is its start. This is its origin. This is the heart of darkness itself. Mm -hmm.